That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. Recording live at the Morgan Crypt Horror Fest in Albuquerque, New Mexico, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. We're not at Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters as usual, but on the road. And we have a special show Today, it's Final Girls and Scream Queens, and we have a panel rather than a one-on-one. We have Amanda Wiss from Fast Times at Ridgemont High and the original Nightmare on Elm Street. We have Amy Steele from more than one Friday the 13th. We have Adrian King from Friday the 13th, Part 1 and 2. And we have Brink Stevens from Sorority Babes in the Slimeball Bowlerama and Slumber Party Massacre. <laughs> so we've got the genre covered. Basically, I'd love to just hear from the beginning how each of you got into this, and was it an anticipated route to take? Start with you, Amanda. Okay. Um, <laughs> so are you saying in general acting? Or in, general in general acting, but in specific, how it kind of moved into a specific genre. Well, interesting. I, I started in theater um, when I was really young, I was a teenager, and I did The Innocence one year and The Bad Seed at a theater Ooh. in Los Angeles. Two great so it was, ones. Yeah, yeah, so it was kind of a, I think, a harbinger of things to come. They were both quite au traced. Yes, yeah. and um, they were, and it was really fun. And as a young girl, to be in these theaters and anyway, to have these plays run for so long, I, I, I loved how the audience responded to that kind of um, intensity, and then. Then I just mostly did commercials and stuff, and I got the audition for Nightmare on Elm Street. But interestingly enough, my agents didn't want me to do it. They said it would be the end of my career. And so they fought against me doing it. And after I met Wes, um, even though I didn't get the lead, I just really liked him, and I thought the story was good. And so I did it against their, which I'm really glad that I, (laughs) I went with my... So then that just sort of happened just from the random... Wes. Were you interested in the genre before you started working within it? I mean, I don't want to say not really, but I just wasn't aware of it. It wasn't part of my life. I grew up in a house. We didn't really have a television, so I didn't watch old movies till later. And I lived in a little beach town, and we had one theater, and it played. um, It was in Manhattan Beach, and it was called the Lamar. And for most of my youth, it played The Ghost and Mr. Chicken and Blackbeard's Ghost. <laughs> and then it switched to Billy Jack for another couple of years. So I didn't have a broad awareness until I was older and out on my own. So I wasn't really aware of the genre. And But I had read scary books, and that's what I talked to Wes about. because I was like, so, 
what's the difference? Is this different than like drama school or whatever? <laughs> and he was like, no, absolutely. Like the reason I, I want you to play it real, because he had seen me in a TV movie called My Mother's Secret Life. And he was like, just do that. And, um, and then we talked about that I read horror books. Because the Nightmare on Elm Street script read like a great horror novel. Wow, he was a very educated man. Yes. And, and like a professor. Amy, what was your beginnings in it? And how did you first become involved as an actress and then become identified in the horror genre? Well, it identified me. <laughs> um, it was not a particular interest of yours beforehand either. No, because you know, as an actor in the business, you you just sort of want to work, and you get sent up for these auditions. I actually didn't really want to do it because I thought, oh no, I wanted to do all of the, um, you know, the sixteen candles and all that. What was his name? The John, John Hughes. John movies. Hughes yeah, movies. Yeah. I wanted to do those. I wanted to work with Spielberg. <laughs> And then after part one came out, it was so big, and they said, no, just go out for this part two. I said, ah, okay. All right, I'll do it. Now, in hindsight, they had offered me part three, and I cannot believe I didn't do it. The script was great, and I think that my agents asked for some a decent salary, and they said, nah, we're just going to go on to the next. So um, another agent mistake, you know, and I should have fought for it, I guess. But anyway, in hindsight. Um, and so how, how, how was the beginning, the beginning of your career? What did that start with? Was this the first thing you went up for? No, no, no. I had, um, let's see. I was sort of discovered down in Florida by a modeling agency. And um, inside that modeling agency called Elite was a commercial agent. And so she would kind of pluck uh, girls then, women or whatever, I was pretty young, um, out and say, go out for these auditions. And so um, she, I started doing commercials, and then I did a, another film before this one. Um, just a very small film, but um, yeah, that's how it sort of happened in the beginning. Adrian, how about you? I mean, being identified with the first Friday the 13th movie as well, um, but... You'd already done work before that. How did, how did your career begin and, again, start to funnel into this genre? Well, my first job was at six months old, so I had very little to say about it. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, uh, um, I was helping pay the rent, you know? Uh, back in the day, my mom was very creative. We lived right outside <laughs> of New York City, and, and I would... Supposedly, I heard, go to anyone <laughs> without crying. And uh, that was all you had to do back in the day, six months old. So I, I nailed everything I went out for. <laughs> we got the best crying baby. <laughs> yeah, best smiling without crying. Yeah. Um, and, but what happened was uh, I grew to love it. I, I grew up in commercials is essentially what happened. And the... I grew to love a set. I grew to enjoy being around that energy because there's always such great energy on a film set or a commercial set or whatever. Um, and uh, when she pulled me out to go to school, I went after the first few days of school like, what's this? You know, <laughs> where's all the fun stuff? 
And uh, I, by second grade, I begged to get back in. And my mom said, well, if you're going to do it, let's do it right. And she set me up with, like, one of the best acting coaches. And within um, six months, I, uh, I nailed uh, Inherit the Wind with, uh, yeah, and I was hooked. I was so hooked because all the actors were like the A-plus names at this time. That was a big get. That was huge. That was Spencer And Treece. I played Melinda, and uh, during rehearsals, because back then you'd actually have months, like weeks of rehearsals before wow. you went uh, and filmed, and uh, I would be crying during the rehearsals, and George Schaefer would come up to me and go, save it, save it. But, oh, George, I just, it's all so sad. So he goes oh my God, I know I'm going to hear from you. You know, I know I'll be seeing you again. And, um, and I never stopped working, essentially. We were on split sessions because back in the 70s, late 60s, uh, baby boomers were just too many people for one school. And so I would get out of school at 12, 17. <laughs> of course, I started at 6.30 a.m., but right. I would take the train into New York City by myself at, oh. and meet, do, what I, do my acting lessons, dancing lessons, singing lessons. And uh, that was my high By the time I graduated high school, I had a resume. But my other passion, which was, I think, if my mom hadn't thrown me into this, was art and uh, my first passion, I think. And they kind of intertwined. So I got a fine art scholarship to FIT in New York City on West 27th Street, and Guiding Light was around the corner on 26th. <laughs> so already there was just, oh my God, this pull. Where do you go? And my art professor at one point said, why weren't you in class? Like, you know, and he, his, his daughter happened to be an actress, and he said, let me give you some advice. My daughter's turning 30, you're 18, you want to do this, you go for it. Put your, your energy into one thing and do it right. He said, take advertising communications, change your major, you'll always be an artist. It was the best advice you could have given me because wow. acting is a business. And it's about marketing yourself and... and uh, I was the first person with a little postcard that had little headshots on it that I'd send around, you know, it was that kind of thing, and it, very innovative for 19. And um, I did not have a commercial agent, uh, I mean, I did not have a theatrical agent at the time, I was still with my commercial agent, but they started going into theatrical. And I actually just auditioned for Friday the 13th with everybody else in the city at that time. I mean, Barry Moss and Julie Hughes were the casting people, and they were they're huge Broadway. They both passed recently, so um, but they were incredible, and they knew every actor on off Broadway, off off Broadway, and all of us were in either off Broadway or off off Broadway shows at the time, and. So we kind of, I mean, they knew Kevin Bacon, you know, that it was like right. they knew every single what, and they pulled us in, and there was literally hundreds of people, and it took about four to five weeks of casting during the summer of 79, and that was it. And the rest is history. The rest mm. is history.
So Brink, what about you? What was your beginning as an actor? Mm, I started out as a scientist in San Diego, California. A I had a master's degree in marine biology. Okay. And I was an environmental consultant for a nuclear power plant, San Onofre. And then my college sweetheart, the artist Dave Stevens, got a job in Los Angeles He's doing storyboards. He's the guy who created the Rocketeer. Yeah, he created Rocketeer. At the time, he started out doing storyboards for Steven Spielberg on Raiders of the Lost Ark. So Dave's in L.A. now, and he's like, hey, come up from San Diego. Let's get married. So I moved to Los Angeles in 1980, and I thought I would find a science job. But it turns out, you know, LA is completely paved over. There's absolutely no biology there to be had. So I um, wandered past a casting office one day, and they said, "Hey, you, come here." And I'm like, "Oh no, no, I'm in the wrong place." Well, they put me in a movie the next day. I was an extra in All the Marbles, and I thought, "Well, this isn't so bad. Um, maybe I'll do acting until I can find another science job." <laughs> and I got big, um, big movies, but small parts. I was in Psych. Three, Three Amigos, This is Spinal Tap, uh, Body Double. But my first speaking role was a horror movie. In 1981, we shot Roger Corman's Slumber Party Massacre. I was victim number two out of about ten. <laughs> and and um, I kind of liked it. It was really fun. I had never screamed before or <laughs> run from a madman or been murdered. So it was something different. Um, and that early success eventually led to a career in horror where I've just done my 245th movie. What? Wow. Wow. No way! Yeah. Wow. Well, let's, let's go back to the oh beginning of the gosh. final girl concept. Probably, I mean, it might have happened. It certainly happened earlier, but John Carpenter's Halloween in 1978 with Jamie Lee Curtis, that probably represents a turning point in what modern horror became. Well, Adrian Barbeau was sort of the forerunner for me. I mean, that was the one who, like, wow, she really stood out at that time. She was great in The Fog and, and married John yeah. Carpenter. For, yeah. um, but that might have been the turning point, but there's been a great evolution in what Scream Queens and Final Girls have become over the years. From 1978 to today, we've gone through the Me Too movement, everything else. So what have, have you seen personally as the evolution in what your role in films like this would be? Let's start with you, Amy. Uh, well, I mean, Ginny, the role that I was in part two, well, I, I, and Adrian too, I mean, the, it was like women actually standing up and, and, and fighting and thinking. And so empowerment. Absolutely. Empowerment. For sure. And also, what's that, um, the person that did the whole dissertation, Carol, somebody from McGill in Canada, she did her... Oh, Kayla, uh, Janice? I'm not sure, but she was talking about how the final girl, like, these, these films can't succeed without these strong women. I mean, look right. at Hong Kong, I mean, or King Kong. You know, they're, like, there has to be this role, and is she going to fight back? Is she, you know, how does she sort of make the whole movie come Maneuver together. through it. So it's been very important from way back when, but then it became more accentuated, I think, since Jamie Lee Curtis. Well, since Jamie Lee, but I mean, even in the decades since that, Amanda, what do you think of 
the evolution, what a final girl represents today, as opposed to what might have been the case in 1978. Because there have been so many evolutions in our society, particularly in entertainment and in the way, the, the concept of, object, of objectification, right. things like that. So what do you feel about that? Well, I think it's interesting like, to talk about the 70s because it was such a uh, powerful time of the women's or feminist awakening and movement. Um, and so I think there were hints of accentuating that but it was still in that era of like the over-sexualization, I think, of women in most film, not just horror. And But I think now there tends to be a little less, um, that it, 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 in my opinion, of less sexuality and more of ingenuity and, and I mean, women could still be obviously sexy and that's you know, fantastic, and, but it's less like objectification, like you said, in my opinion, in, in a lot of the films. So I think that is a newer push, especially since the Me Too movement. And, and I think it's interesting, too, just because traditionally so much of horror that is female-driven, it's written by men. <laughs> and so it's often what a man's idea of what a strong woman is or a man's idea of what a sexy strong woman is or those things. And I think there's a little more female input now in a way, like so that it's not necessarily somebody's idea of what it is. It's somebody's more experience of what it could be, um, which is, I just think it's a subtle difference and not, one is not better than the other. But I feel like that's one of the Things yeah, there's a, a French woman director named Coralie Fargia who made a movie called Revenge. Yes. That is absolutely brilliant, and it's beautifully done. It, it does all of the tropes that you're used to in this kind of movie, but it doesn't feel exploitive at all. It, it, it's an exploitation movie in the truest sense, but it's got this power, and knowing that it was written directed by a woman... It changes the attitude completely. Adrian, what do you think has been evolutionary about the time from 1980 when you did the first well, one, or 79, till now? It's, I kind of, I feel like I'm maybe five years older than, than some, and those five years are kind of critical because I remember, you know, the, the mother's, like, you only do, you, you're just a housewife. And I remembered my mother driving me to the train station. She as we're going, and uh, we were talking about what what I was going to do because I was talking about, am I going to be an artist? Am I going to do this? And, I, and she says, and I said to her, well, one thing I really know I don't want to be is a dumb housewife or a mother. I really <laughs> said those words, and I remember them, and she was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God, how could you say that to me? And I said, because every, you know, at that age, at, what, 15 or 16, I could see so much changing in the world for the benefit of a woman actually being able to have a career and, and not have to just be a secretary, because that's about as far as women got back in the day, um, and uh, breaking ceilings. I, I was watching women starting to break ceilings, women who could actually go to law school, you know, and more than just one in a class, you know. And it was uh, at a time where... I, I remember burning bras, which was pretty funny when you talked to me, but, uh, you know, and, and then to get to a film where 
it's the first time I've ever seen anything like, or heard of red, anything where a, a girl is going to be the one who survives, I mean, and kill the killer. Well, this is unique. So I totally felt empowered by that. And uh, I, you know, I took it to heart because that was how I felt in my real world. Like, I really want to break ceilings and, I, and how dare men tell you, no, you can't do this. And I, I remember just living those days and then seeing it on the screen and going, whoa, this is a game changer. So for me, of course, before part two, a guy took me down and a stalker and the whole thing changed my, uh, my whole view of life. But um, I was determined to become that person. Just, uh, just uh, not let men take you down. And that was the whole thing. I remember with women my age at the time, we were in dance classes and we were being stalked and we were being told by men in and FBI, there's nothing we can do for you until you're physically attacked. And it wasn't until 87 when Rebecca Schaefer was killed by her stalker that things changed. So it was kind of almost like getting, figuring out, getting, things were all changing, but not changing quickly enough, you know? And it scares me right now because things are changing going backwards. Yeah. They're going backwards, and we fought so hard to get to where we are and to, to actually be the ones that we could decide what we wanted to do as women, as a female, and not have some man say, no, you can't do that. And to actually have old fart men telling women what they can do with their bodies yep. all over again, yep. to me... And having it condoned legally, which is exactly the most it's like what situation. planet are we living with yeah. on it's 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 just so frightening, especially after the me too, thinking that we're moving forward that's what I mean about the evolution being reflected in these films as well yes, as in I, society it's, it's and how important it is. is the only thing to me that's allowed to really reflect in society what's going on, starting with George Romero. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's sixty-eight. Right? I know the living dead. It'd be interesting to see if, with these new changes that have been happening backwards, if that changes the storytelling that we see in the next couple of years. Just be interesting to see how that affects that. Well, what's interesting about horror movies is how conservative they've always been. The good girl, the virgin, makes it all the way to the end. The bad girl gets her just desserts. Brink, what do you think about that? Um, the very first feature film I was in, Slumber Party Massacre, was unusual in that it was written by a woman, feminist Rita Mae Brown, and directed by a woman. Amy Holden Jones. And in the middle of the slasher craze, this was extremely rare. And it's considered the, probably the first feminist slasher film because the women, the girls, band together at the end and defeat the killer. I was a victim because I had another assignment I had to do. I had to, they, had, they had to kill me quickly so I could go to my next job. But, um, you know, it was really unusual, and it was so, such a blessing for me to see that. 
that there were strong female characters, even in 1981. And then for many years I played victims. You know, horror needs screamers, and I could scream. <laughs> and it was Fred Olin Ray who first decided that they, he could do more interesting things with me than kill me. So I became the villain. And I loved playing killers. You know, I've, I've probably died in 58 movies, and I think I've <laughs> killed 35 people in films, <laughs> some of whom desperately deserved it. <laughs> and, um, you know, and then later, as I um, sort of aged out of playing those college co-ed roles, I got a lot of uh, parts that were written for men in the script. I played the President of the United States. I've been a police commissioner, a judge a professor, a scientist, and I loved the fact that they would consider hiring me for traditionally male roles. And then last year, thanks largely, I think, to the Me Too movement, I directed my first feature oh, film. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you, Sorority Babes too. Wow, that's, that's oh my gosh. Well, oh, there's another so cool. hallmark of, of your early career mm -hmm. in that nudity was required. Uh, in most of the movies you did early on in your career. So tell me about how you feel if there's been an evolution in that sense, because there's far less sexuality in horror movies today than there were in the 70s and the 80s. It was a given because our target audience was college-age males, so there had to be nudity. It was in our contract, just like there would be a crazy movie title and a lurid box cover with the monster carrying off the girl. And I had felt that, I was so glad when I didn't no longer had to do nudity, uh, and I felt like society had changed and it was no longer necessary. So I was really surprised when I got the script for Sorority Babes 2, last summer, and there's two shower scenes and a love scene. And I'm like, really? And all the actresses are like, really? Do we have to do this? And uh, Charlie Band at Full Moon said, that's what the boys want to see. That's what's going to sell tickets. And it's what the title offers. Yeah, yeah, you know, and it was kind of a throwback to the original movie. So I think partly that's why they hired a female director, because of all the nudity that was in it. But I was kind of disappointed. You know, I thought we'd kind of move beyond that in society, where nudity was required. And I felt bad for the girls. Well, what about stories about women in jeopardy? What is it that makes them so powerful? Amy, what do you think is the driving force behind that? Women in jeopardy? Oh, it's been kind of the hallmark of so many horror movies, probably the vast majority. Well, here's the thing. I am not a horror movie expert <laughs> by any means, so I don't, I, I, I can't really comment on that intelligently. Well, what do you think, I, Amanda? The appeal. Well, I don't have a very positive thing to say about that. I think that That's there's... That's why we're here. <laughs> I think that traditionally, just in the animal kingdom, women have been preyed upon, and I think there's some lizard brain titillation about seeing women in jeopardy, in my opinion, which I'm not a scientist, and I'm not the most <laughs> literate person about this. I, too, am not an expert on, on the horror genre, but just in general, even in action films or whatever, I just feel like that it's tickling the lizard brain of, of there's, I don't know if, if there's a, women are just so threatening because they create life that it's great to see them, like, made low. I don't know. They're to just, treat them as the weaker Yeah, they're, yeah. they're prey that they're, and mm. then, and then, and then we double titillate by 
aha, but she's going to be the one that survives and she's really, really strong. So right. it's like a, I don't know, it's like playing with like some part of the lizard brain, I think, in my opinion, because I think ultimately, I mean, unless it's just for a dramatic that, you know, in any well-written story, some there has to be some sort of jeopardy, something is at stake. It doesn't always have to be a woman. It can be whatever. I mean, you can't tell a story without some... You know, drama where there's right. somebody, somebody that in some, jeopardy, somebody yeah. in jeopardy that somebody has to fight for. But the women in jeopardy thing, like it, it often it makes me think that it's somebody's that that people are secretly titillated by seeing women laid low, <laughs> and, then, yeah, then, one, and then a few of them get to be like the fighters and survive. Well, one of the things that bothers me about rape revenge movies, um, which are they love to call them feminist because the women win in the end. It's 85 minutes of exploitation of the yeah. woman and five minutes of victory of the woman. Yes, and I agree. it tries to have its cake and eat it too in a way that I find very unsettling. Yeah. I, I agree with you with that. And I've actually said that on a panel once and I got booed. <laughs> and I was like, well, just my opinion. But um, just, you know, I mean, I, I've never survived in a horror film. So I'm, I'm always <laughs> the, like, the person that like, fights but not well. The <laughs> and then I die, or I fight well, but it's just not good enough. And um, I, yeah, there is something about like that people that you know, it's a bunch of like you know, like rape, revenge, sexual like abuse, or all these things. But then in the end, the woman wins, and she walks away with her machete, and her clothes are all torn, her boob is hanging out, and you're like, yeah, you know what? That's not really a thing. Like that's <laughs> not really like a, a feminist statement of of a woman. Uh, in my opinion, but uh, what do you think, Adrian? Because Friday the Thirteenth was one of the originators of that whole theme that the good girl survives this is true. and the kids who have sex. Die. I have to. Yeah. Interestingly enough, they did try to get me to take my clothes off. <laughs> <laughs> it was 1979. Yeah. So uh, I, they already had film in the can, and I went, nope. <laughs> so uh yeah i don't know i really don't know i have such mixed emotions about the whole thing it's an entertainment it's a roller coaster in terms of of the, the sexuality you know there it's 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 entertainment to some people it's just you know it's the way i look at it it's just like the the little icing, the things that all of you've got your basic story going with that you need filler, and what are you going to fill it with? You know. <laughs> also, don't you think sex and violence they they get commingled they in do. life, not they just do. in horror? There's yeah. just something about well, sexual abuse is a violent act. Yes. Yeah. yeah so yeah. I well, women just have to work a lot harder. But in the end, a lot of times, I think the women end up looking a lot smarter, too. So I'm on the other yeah. side of this. I grew up in a family of three brothers, and it was all about survival. So to me, like I'm like, well, yeah, I hear what you're saying, and I just don't have enough, I'm not literate enough to, to talk about it. But I'm sitting here having this reaction right now going, wait, I, some movies that I see, the women are so much more intelligent, and they think... And it's harder for them, and it's just, they just have well, a lot more obstacles. Especially your character. And my character. Your character. Tons this. more obstacles. But then I remember 
when I was in the like, commercial business, all those commercials, the men come off so stupid. <laughs> they don't know how to wipe up like shit on the counter. <laughs> and it's like the woman has to come over and go, oh, you so I have that dumb. exact commercial <laughs> and, for Downey. And I'm like, oh my God, these poor men, they're so stupid. Like, why would That's they so do that? That's true. So, and uh, that was 1981. Yeah. After, or 83, after I had done part, part one. I did this, and the name of the commercial was Dumb Dad. And, and he's like, what do I do with this baby? Oh, honey, you know, you, I'll be back to take care of everything with Downey. Or whatever, you well, know. Dads was, were always dumb in TV and so movies. Dumb. Oh, my always. God, so dumb. So, the, so, so it was happening. Women were, in, even in Downey commercials, <laughs> they were getting smart, you know. Yeah. They were going to work, honey. Take care of the baby, I'll be back. And that was really... I felt things were moving forward. Yeah, well, know? the ingenuity of the female characters who see their way through, I'm, I'm not talking about that in, yeah, in general. Sorry. I love I, the strength of yeah. the, the woman who survivor, the final girl. But there are those films that are we have titillation for 85 lambs. minutes. Yeah, yeah, sacrificial lambs. Right. But titillation for 85 minutes yeah. and five minutes of victory. But, yeah. um, Brink, what about... I think it's what Brink said, though. you got to sell tickets. Right. And... And unfortunately, that's what sells. Unfortunately, that is it. Yeah. Well, and you have the natural vulnerability of women. And it makes me think back on um, the horror movies of the 1950s, where you've got the scientist, his beautiful daughter, and the He-Man. And, <laughs> and the monster threatens, you know, and the, the He-Man's fighting the monster. And the daughter just stands there helplessly. And I remember yelling at the TV, do something, for <laughs> right. God's sakes, hit the monster, right? <laughs> and they would never do anything. So at least, you know, we've evolved out of the 50s mentality. Well, that's, that's <laughs> one of the things that happened with Halloween and its, uh, and its offspring, is that um, there weren't heroes. There were heroines. You know, mm. the, the men always saved the women's lives before things changed in 1978. What was the first time that you felt that happen? Oh, I don't know. I'm going to pass that one on. I'd have to think. Amy, what do you think? Wait, wait. So say again. So, um, well, just that they no longer relied on male heroes to save the day. That there was the ingenuity of the female characters like Jamie Lee Curtis. Alien. Alien. Ripley and oh, Alien. Oh, there you go. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Alien yeah. may be the most feminist yeah. oh, horror movie sure. ever made. How about Terminator? Terminator. Oh, gosh, yeah. Oh, oh my, my God. God. Linda that Hamilton. Was amazing. Oh. She was Buffed incredible. up in T2. Oh, my right? God. She was Especially just... in T2. Oh, yeah. God, yeah. That, oh in some horror movies, the men die first. The boyfriend gets killed first. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. true. And the girl is left alone, and so she has to fend for herself. Yeah. It's true. True. More titillation. <laughs> well, what would you say is your favorite, the thing that people most ask you about when you come to conventions like this, the fans, what do they like to talk to you about most? Oh, just for me personally, everyone wants to know about my death scene yeah. in the revolving room and want to know how that worked. Right. In, um, and in Nightmare on Elm Street. In Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. yeah I think that that's it. And, and people really like the way I died. <laughs> so. Well, tell me about the fan experience, too, because this is something that is, is fairly recent in the last couple of decades is yeah. that actors now visit with their fans and are able to have a two-way conversation and they can make part of their living going to conventions and, and having this interaction yeah. like we're having here yeah. at Morgan Crypt. 
I think I feel really honored that people want to come up and talk to me, and I feel I'm always pleasantly surprised, and it, it's, it's amazing that people like something I did because I love doing it so much, and to have that feedback about having why different movies touched people, I, I feel like it's really an honor to get to hear those stories and to, to share that experience with someone that... Um, because in a weird way, that's our mind meld. Like I enjoyed doing it so much, and they enjoyed watching it, and they want to tell me about that. And I, I think it's an honor to get to hear those personal stories at these conventions. Working within the genre, has it made you more appreciative of the other films in the genre, or of the genre itself? Yeah, I mean, I, I have to say, I, I love the artistry of, of movies in general, but. I don't like being scared, so <laughs> I tend to fast forward through horror films, which is just like, sorry to every director and actor ever, because I don't like being scared, but I, it does, it makes me appreciate it, and, um, you know, and, and just as a, a genre within the within filmmaking, I mean, I just think it's amazing that anybody ever gets their film made, yes, and that it that it gets to a place where people can see it, and I don't think a lot of people realize how difficult it is to get any film made yeah. or, or otherwise. And so I, I was, you know, I appreciate them for that sense too, people being able to get them made and tell their stories and give actors work. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> nice. And so Amy, what's your experience in the, the fan experience in coming to conventions like this and talking to them about the appreciation of, of the work that you do? Well, it's, it's, again, it's been great, but I just want to say that filmmaking is so tedious. <laughs> so again, to get have anything made is just supernatural almost. But um, but these these are amazing. Like I, I talk about the gift that keeps on giving, and um, and just to, I think what really gives me a lot of joy is when I see people come out and they say, "Oh my God, I saw this film when I was five years old, and my uncle showed it to me, and I've just loved these forever." And I can just see it in. In their bodies, their psyche has grown up with these films and with these characters that we are. And so it's just an honor to sort of inhabit that part of the psyche. And I, and I know how deep it goes. So I just, it's, it's really, I'm just honored to be that, fill those shoes. Well, one of the interesting things about this genre is that the fans are very possessive of these movies and of the actors who are in them. They buy the videos, they buy the magazines, they buy the autographed pictures, they want the selfies and all that. Adrian, tell me about the passion that this genre in particular brings out. It's incredible, really. It's, it's the gift that keeps on giving. And it's, it's love, it's real love. And uh, it's an interesting relationship because with my, I call them my campers, because I have a hard time with fans. You know, it's yeah. just, it's, but we, I literally owe uh, a lot to my, my campers, my fans, because <clears throat> we all share being survivors. And after I had my stock experience and after Friday came out, I went underground. I, I, I only did voiceovers and looping, which was fabulous. It was my way of keeping my pinky in the business, and that became my career. 
uh, I stopped doing on camera. And it wasn't until my first convention in 2004 a Chiller, New Jersey, that um, I was able to actually feel closure, even though I'd been to therapy, many <laughs> years of therapy on what had happened to me. But it, it, it began this relationship with my fans that we are, they are survivors, because everyone in this room has survived something. Everyone in this auditorium has gone through hell at some point in their life and survived. So we all share that, I believe. That's a really important point because the empowerment that came through the fans and your role helped you get through something really personal. It really did. And I, like I said, it wasn't until I shared it with, in a room like, in a convention room with it, like this, and People were like, what happened to you? Where did you go after part two? Um, and it was like, well, I was expecting to be asked that question, and here's just a little bit. But I told them, and Betsy Plummer's on the way out of their side, and she goes, you had a what? You had a stalker? And she went through hell, her own hell with critics taking her down for a horror movie. And so we had a connection there, and we became best buddies for having survived Friday the 13th aftermath and um, all of a sudden I felt that little tiny piece of my heart heal and ever since that moment like my my relationship is I appreciate each and every fan I have I love listening to their stories how my performance it made sense to me after all the full circle made sense that here I was I survived in a movie, but in my own reality, I had to survive. And we all had something in common, and we share it to this day. I, I mean, like Amy was saying, three generations around the world. We have fans, three generations around the world from one movie. Yeah. You know, it, how does that happen? It's, it's just, it's incredible. And so, yes, I cherish my fans. I cherish our relationship. I love hearing the personal stories. Um, of course, everyone says to me, hey, when you got killed in part two, and I have to say, nope, Alice did not get killed. It was a horrible post-traumatic stress dream within a horrible nightmare, and maybe part two was all Alice's dream because Ginny was a, sh a psychiatry student. I wound her into part two. You know, so we, we have so that. much to talk about, you know? And uh, even to a fan film that we did, uh, because the fans loved it so much. We have directors and filmmakers that all the writers are fanboys and fangirls on the future Crystal Lake series coming from NBC Peacock when the writer's strike is, saw, you know? Right. Uh, finally, I hope the writer's Open strike is, uh, is taken care of because our writers do need to be paid. and and uh, give us more of what the fans want. And so, it, you know, it's a really weird dichotomy. It's a blessing in disguise because I am able to heal other people who have gone through trauma. It's amazing. I have people who cry in my arms to share their stories with me. I have people who've told me stories that you can't believe. Uh, military in certain situations in 
in foreign countries that go flashback to how Alice survived. It's, it's remarkable what this film has done. A, a little baby, low-budget horror film has changed my life and changed a lot of other people's lives. Well, that brings up another interesting point, is that the fans really feel like they know you. They feel like they know you and Absolutely. your character is you in a lot of Absolutely. cases. But the personal aspect of that seems to be something really to, to cherish or to be afraid of. <laughs> so, um, Brink, you've been doing conventions since the 70s with Comic-Con. Mm -hmm. So tell me about that experience and how that has evolved over the years. Originally, it was a bunch of comic book artists getting together and and selling their books and the like, and you were there posing as Vampirella and people, things like that. So tell me how th this specific case of genre conventions has evolved over time. Uh, I was one of the original founding members of San Diego Comic Con. Um, I started in 73, and in 74 they had their very first masquerade and I cosplayed as Vampirella, which at the time we didn't call it cosplay, we just dressed as our favorite characters. And I won first place in the masquerade, so they said, okay, you're in charge of it now, you're gonna be running it. <laughs> and I was 19 years old and we were all kids, we were all teenagers and nobody had the faintest idea what they were doing. The, the original shows were like 400 people. So for 10 years I ran the San Diego Comic Con masquerade and I put on uh, halftime shows when the judges would break to judge the costumes and stuff. I had a dance troupe. I taught dance at a studio. And uh, I'd bring my dancers in and we did funeral for a friend and ballroom blitz and all kinds of little <laughs> fun dances. And it was just really cool. Um, you know, there weren't a lot of pretty girls in fandom at the time. So then years go by and I really started a heavy convention circuit in the 90s. And it was the first time that fans were actually able to meet the girls in person. And in horror, first of all, it was mostly male heroes. And a lot of the recent male figures had masks, Freddie, Jason, and so on. So we were there unmasked, female, cute, and the boys all wanted to meet us. And that really increased our popularity. And I think that led to the magazines like Femme Fatale, started in 92, Screen Queens Illustrated, all of those, Draculina. Um, I was at a cinema wasteland convention recently for a slumber party massacre reunion. And every single person who came up to the table remembered exactly the circumstance they had first seen the movie. Oh, I was, I, I'll never forget, I was nine years old and my babysitter let me watch it. Or I was 11 and my brother, older brother, rented it. And I felt like I was their babysitter, <laughs> that they grew up with me. The naughty and, babysitter. Yeah, yeah. And I've also found that uh, horror fans tend to be incredibly intelligent and a little bit nerdy. And, <laughs> and I think that we all band together for those reasons. And I have a huge gay following because I think they can really identify with the female um, characters in movies, you know, having to survive and things like that. So, and being strong characters. So it, it's really um, democratic in that sense, where I just love the, the horror community. It feels like a family, like a tribe, and they're so supportive. 
Adrian, well you said. talked about how therapeutic this whole convention circuit was for you. What do you think about the, the genre itself, the horror films themselves? Facing up to fears in a safe movie theater or on your television, do you find that to be something good and positive and therapeutic about our genre? Interestingly enough, um, I wasn't the biggest horror fan, although I remember in fifth grade finding Edgar Allan Poe and just devouring it. But um, I saw The Exorcist, and for some reason, now I laugh at it, but back in 73 when it came out, it, it just pulverized me. And I, and I didn't see another horror movie until Tom Savini, of when I showed me, he took all the elements of horror away from me by showing me artistically how it was all done. So, yeah. yeah. So now I love horror movies because I love to watch, I love to watch all the elements, but my favorite is to see how the special effects are done. And um, I appreciate the artistry and there's so many levels of artistry, the, the music that goes into it. And, uh, um, no. Well, it is such a composite. You know, it's so much harder to make a good horror movie than a good drama because a good horror movie has to be good drama first. Yeah. And then on top of that, mm -hmm. there's tension, thrills, and suspense, yes. and all of that. And as someone who works within the genre myself, I, I, I'm so aware of that, that getting good script, good actors is just the beginning. And all of that being made into something suspenseful. What do you think is valuable? Amanda, what do you think is valuable about the horror genre itself? Well, I mean, I think well, there's there's many things. I mean, obviously, just it's great entertainment, and the world needs entertainment. We need the circus. Like life is, you know, people need a release, and I think horror definitely releases parts of us that in our day to day life we don't we're not free to scream and do, for the most part and do all that <laughs> stuff. And and I think so. I think just as just as entertainment and as a, a release. And, um, you know, I, I just think that, that it's okay that it's just kind of fun. Yeah. You know, I think we need fun. We need a release. We need bonding thing with all our friends or everybody screaming together or whatever. It's like, it's, I think it's just, you know, fun entertainment. And, and it's a shared experience like yeah, comedy. Exactly. It's totally, know. like, because it happens within the audience. It's not a solo um Thing. I wanted to say what you were saying. I was sat on a panel once for Blumhouse, and somebody from Blumhouse, and I don't remember who, said, all great horror is intrinsically sad. And that's always stuck with me because the, the, the stories that have lasted, if you take the horror out, there's still a great story that's sad, in my opinion. <laughs> Not no, that that's I'm a so writer. True. I noticed yeah. that, yeah. especially, it all started because a poor little boy drowned in a lake, you know? Right. It's how sad is that? A poor mo a mom loses her son and and has to revenge, you know. And you, like it makes sense in a crazy kind of way. Amy, do you think it's therapeutic? Do you think that the horror film? You're not a big horror fan, but do you see what the fans get out of it? Yeah, I mean, from what I hear, is survival. It is just if if I you know I have I remember this one person said. Oh my God, as a kid, my, it was so rough growing up in my family that I would just, I had Jason and I, Jason's what got me through. And I'm like, really? <laughs> How can that be? It seems so, um, huge discrepancy there for me. But, um, but 
I, I hear that constantly. So, I mean, the, the horrors that we have on the news are incredibly painful and penetrating. And when you have one hour and 45 minutes with people to be able to laugh and there's some kind of resolution, even if it's hinting at another sequel, <laughs> at, least, yeah. at least there's something, some roller coaster ride that you've been through with people rather than this ongoing tragedies of what's happening in the world, whether it be climate change, whether it be women losing their rights. Um, at least there's a, something that we can, we can all experience together at the same time, synchronistically. There's something very bonding about the horror film in that a lot of, not just the fans, but the filmmakers themselves are, were outsiders in their youth. Yeah. <clears throat> they yeah. grew up as outsiders. You don't have Western conventions like this. You don't have comedy <laughs> conventions like this, but you have horror conventions. And it draws together a group of people who were not the prom kings and queens, yeah. but have found this place where they can meet on common ground. Brink, what do you think about that? Yeah, totally. I totally agree that, you know, we're a bunch of misfits, but we all love each other. <laughs> yes. We're a community. We've, we've found, somewhere we've found something that we've connected with. What a huge niche. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> were you popular in school, Amanda? Um, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> no, not really. Um, I wore a patch over one eye, and I had buck teeth, and I was scrawny, and I got beat up pretty much every day walking home on the railroad tracks. Oh. I would say you were not a popular kid no, in school and by I that got, definition. There was a, a group Jesus. of kids that threw pomegranates at me, so all my clothes were always stained with pomegranates. Oh, and um, so I, 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 blossomed, yeah, I blossomed my like junior year in high school. But you know that whether I blossomed or not, that other person is really the person inside. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, um, and, and makes me a good actor. Yeah. And, you know, I was going to say all of us, because especially from like the 80s, uh, Robert England has always said on panels, and he's so right, that the early 80s films were the first movies people got to take home and make their own. And so then it got commonplace, but those early 80s films, it was the first time you could own your favorite story and yeah, play it over right. and over so and share it in, in your the, house, in your house with your yeah. friends or or all yeah. your movies and all that. And then later, it, it's mm -hmm. the, it's not the same. But that genre, part of the thing I love at coming mm -hmm. to conventions, is a lot of us are from that era, and the people come up and they we are their family because we're the first generation of things they owned that they. Got to play we were in, in their living room. In their living exactly. room, in their bedroom. Yeah. Their I friends would come today. over right. and they'd watch it. And I've always thought like that, that's just fascinating to mm -hmm. me because that, that's part of the relationship too, I think, is that that era when those movies were first made available to own. And they can watch them over and over, over and over, and, over. and they feel a sense of ownership. Yes, yeah. and that's why they could show their, yeah, why the babysitter showed the, five-year-old too soon, or, or the brother has it, because they owned it and they could share it. Yeah. And I just find that, yeah, I think that's, that's one point. of the fascinating yeah. things about it. And here, you know, that, and I feel the connection, even though I haven't been in the house watching it, I, I know what that's like, because I did it too with my own Right. Well, not my movies. <laughs> like, secretly, I was just sitting home watching my movies. But, um, but like, I did it too with so movies good. I liked, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, that absolutely. I'd play them over. I still do. We all have that movie that right. when you go have to. a crappy day, you go, you know what it's time for? 
What's your go-to? Oh, you're going to hate it. No, it's not possible. The holiday. <laughs> I hate that. No, I'm kidding. It just makes me happy. They change houses. They get to have a new experience. Everybody drinks nice wine. They dress cute. It's a total brain drain. And I'm like, all is right in the world. And then I move on. Amy, do you, do you have a go-to, Amy? No, I go outside. I, I'm not like a big TV watcher or movie watcher. I, yeah. yeah. I like one. to bake and then go outside. <laughs> Adrian, you're how about so you? You're so lovely. I fucking love you so much. Oh, you're just like, I, I, I have you. a list of movies I love to go to, but they're mostly musicals. Oh, I do like, <laughs> you know, and I love, I love the old black and white film noir. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Great stuff. I, I don't know. There's something very comforting about watching old movies. Yeah. Back I, in the day. I do too. I, I love Laura and Portrait oh, of Jenny oh, yeah. and all those old black so and white good. films. You mentioned Billy Jack. Yeah. Oh, oh wow. my God. I remember that movie so well. I remember where I was. Me too. See, there it is. I've seen it so many times. Yeah, and I mean, just, oh my God, in the song, One Brave Soldier. Yeah. And yeah. I, I mean, the whole oh. thing, like, it's like, because it literally played in our town for a couple of years. Yeah. So it was the only thing you would just go. We'd be like, Billy Jack again, okay. Like, we'd say the lines with the people. Right. and So I know what that's like to, like, have a movie that you're so yeah. engrossed in. And, oh, my gosh, I just, I remember just thinking, like, I don't know. I was like, I'm going to be an actor. I'm going to be in a movie like Billy Jack. Well, you're exposed yeah. to it. Every one of these yeah. shows that you attend, you're exposed to the power of the media that you took part in and how much a partnership there is between the audience and the performers. Mm -hmm. And it's really, what's the last time you watched one of your movies with an audience? It was interesting. They just did a retrospective of Better Off Dead at the Savannah Film, at SCAD. And they had all, they flew all of us in and it was a huge theater and they played the movie and everyone knew all the lines. And it was just like, I was really taken aback because I'd really only seen that movie once before in a theater. I hadn't really seen it. I'd seen bits and pieces on TV. Was there a particular revelation? Well, you know what? I was so taken with the audience being so, like, knowing every line and, like, yelling things out that I got, I was so emotional. Like, I don't know how much I was taking in the movie. I was really taking in the environment. And, um, and uh, but, you know, like, just... It, it, that it was just such a funny movie. Yeah. And I was like, I don't, I don't know that I got that. I mean, I thought maybe it was, but... <laughs> and then afterwards, the Q&A. So that was the last one I saw. And it, that was just a couple weeks ago. And it was, it was mind-blowing to me. I, I was like, I don't even... This is, cannot be my life. Like, this is so crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Amy, what's the last time you saw one of your movies with an audience? Uh, with Adrian, part one and two, a double feature in Portland uh, a year ago. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and Adrian... I was watching Adrian's movie going, wow, oh my God, this is exactly like part two. I can't remember even watching this. And then she watched part two and said, I don't remember seeing this part. And <laughs> after, yeah, after, but, um, it, was, yeah, it, was, it was really fascinating. Was there something that was new to you that you didn't realize from back in the early 80s? I don't know. I was more amazed at just how, how similar, similar, it, like the same character. It's not a sequel; it's a remake. Same, <laughs> it was a t- complete yes. remake, only you know looked a little more colorful. <laughs> Adrian, what was your experience? Well, we we both had the same 
experience. Was there anything that you saw that you'd forgotten about or that was fresh to you Such this time question. around? Um, Probably not, because I've seen it enough a lot, with yeah. audiences. Well, it's such a fan favorite. It, 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 but I do, I do appreciate the fact that when you're in the audience and you can, and everybody's waiting to see who hasn't seen it in the audience. So at the yeah. final jump scare, you know, yeah. and everybody applauds. You know, it's just. <laughs> it's uh, a classic it's moment. It's a classic moment. It yeah. still holds up. I can't believe. 43 or something years later. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Brink, what's the last time you saw one of your movies with an audience? In Tucson, Arizona, a theater showed the first Sorority Babes from 1986. And there were 400 people there, and most of them had not been born yet when the movie was made, so it was a young college crowd. And they all laughed at the right places, you know, they gasped, and um, they got it. And I realized that it still holds up all those years later, because it was just such a perfect little movie. It was low budget, but they flip a car, they light a guy on fire, you know, the <laughs> acting is so cute, it was me Everything people want in a movie. Yeah, I know, and then Dave Dakota, a 24-year-old director who did, accomplished all of this, and it's just a wonderful film that really holds up all, these, all this time later. Well, I want to thank all of you for joining me and talking about this and, and doing it all together. Usually we're one-on-one, -on -one, but this is really a great experience. So thank you so much, Amanda Wiss and Amy Steele and Adrian King, Brink Stevens, for joining us on Postmortem. And it's just been such a pleasure to have you here. Thank oh, you so thank much. Thank you so much. Great questions. Yes. And it was fun to get to know yeah. everybody better. And it just like I Thank you. It's a, this has been fantastic. Excellent. So great. Thank Thanks, everybody. For Thanks yeah, for joining thank us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Postmortem with Mick Garris is produced by Mick Garris and Joe Russo. Our sound engineer is Christopher Leon Price. Our announcer is Jeff Gelb. Our graphic designer is John Holland. And our theme was composed and performed by Bill Burney with additional music by John Jasensky. If you're enjoying our show, please take a moment to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.